0: Clear thoughts, that's a good prayer, yes. Pray for clear thoughts <laughs> from Pastor Mark this morning. <laughs> um, we're in a sermon series just a few weeks in on the, on the book of Romans, a, a wonderful, phenomenal uh, book in the New Testament written by Paul uh, to a young fledgling church in uh, the capital of the Roman Empire. And we began uh, by seeing that, you know, the book of Romans is about newness uh, of life that God gives us through his son. It's a free gift. And, and we, we looked at the gospel, and I encouraged us all to start afresh with the gospel. Start as if you don't know anything about the gospel, and begin to hear Paul's word spoken to us. And, and we learned that the, that the good news is that, that righteousness, real righteousness from heaven is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and that's the good news, uh, but then... Um, Paul is is later going to uh, unfold the good news in, in even more spectacular ways, but before we get there, remember, uh, we need to hear the bad news before we get to the good news, and, and I shared with you last week, we have, what is it, four weeks of bad news, so uh, last week was one, and so this week we're, we're back into it, so, um, but... Last week, we looked at a person that uh, Ray Ortlund Jr. describes as Mr. Self-Indulgence. He sees the world as one vast playground with no rules or restraints to his ego and appetites. He's all about having fun, having a, a good time. Though creation points to the reality of God's existence, uh, he suppresses the truth about God. He takes God off of his throne and he places himself there and lives his life that way. Now, today, Paul introduces us to Mr. Moral High Ground. Uh, He has a sense of obligation and duty and civility. Uh, and restraint he's got a strong moral code and doing the right things matter to him and and so he's worried about the moral decay in our society and he and he can't believe how messed up other people are paul says uh, has news for mr moral high ground he says you are no better off than mr self-indulgent how is that how can that be how is it that good people are, are no better off in god's sight bad people. Well, let's see. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape God's judgment? Or, you, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, And also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature, do what the law requires, they are law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his ways, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have spoken through Paul, um, scripture, truth, a word for us to hear. May our hearts be open to receive. May your spirit guide us in this time. And may we um, feast upon the riches of your grace and respond accordingly, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this week I was trying to think of a way to illustrate in a broad sense what Paul is trying to convey in this passage, and here's what came to mind. Imagine a wrestling match, you're watching it, and a wrestler is pinning down to the mat his opponent, and he's got him pinned, and, and, and the referee is going, one, two, three, victory. victory. But then, in just one fell swoop, the wrestler who just pinned his opponent turns and grabs the referee and takes and body slams him to the ground, pins him to the ground, one, two, three. in a sense, that is what Paul is doing here in this text. See, last week, we saw that Paul pinned to the map to the mat, those who uh, live as if there is no God above, Mr. Uh, the irreligious, self-indulgent man. Beginning in chapter 2, Paul grabs for another opponent. Who is he? He's the person who would be standing over Paul's shoulder as he wrestles, saying, You show them, Paul. You show those godless heathens how messed up they are. Get them. Thank God we're not like them, huh, Paul? Whew. In chapter two, Paul takes Mr. Moral High Ground and pins him down. Now we're all familiar with the self-righteousness of Mr. Mo High Ground for a couple reasons. One is because he's all around us. We see him everywhere. We see him in our coworker who never admits his or her faults and then finds fault with us, right? Uh, we see it in the hard-working man who complains that others don't work as hard as he does, and he's angry that uh, the government gives out handouts. We certainly see it in politicians, right, during this election season. So we're so familiar with Mr. Moral High Ground because he's all around us. But also, isn't it true we're so familiar with Mr. Moral High Ground because he's also in us? <laughs> We are quick to elevate ourselves. We have a tendency to to lift ourselves up above the fray, to not see uh, uh, where our faults are, and then we we lift ourselves up and we look down on others. We magnify their sin and minimize ours. In our passage, Paul pins Mr. Hor- Mr. Moral High Ground down. He looks him in the eyes and he says, "You have no excuse, O oh man." He says, you think you're safe from God's wrath because you're a better person? Well, you're wrong. Paul wants us to see, last week we saw, uh, that, that uh, the, the irreligious need to repent of their moral record in God's presence and trust in Christ's record. Today we see that the self-righteous, too, need to repent. They need to repent of their moral record and instead trust in Christ's perfect record of righteousness. That's what we'll see this morning. We're going to do so, we're going to divide the text up. It's conveniently divided into three sections. We're going to look at the bad news for moralists. We're going to look at the criterion by which God judges all. And then we'll look at the standard by which God judges all. First, the, the bad news for moralists. And there's three things we see in the in the first five verses. The first thing we see about moralists is that they too are under God's judgment. You know, the last thing a self-righteous person thinks uh, is that God is displeased with him. How can God be angry with me? It's those other guys that he's worried about. I don't give him any trouble, right? Paul says you couldn't be more wrong. Paul says that when when you place yourself in a position over others, you think yourself better. And then you become what you have no right to be, a judge. It's true. The evil twin that always travels with self-righteousness is judgmentalism, is it not? When you place yourself on a pedestal, you cannot help but look down on those who, well, don't quite measure up. Jesus told a parable about how insidious this is, how evil this is. He said, you can look it up in Luke 18. He also told this parable to, who? To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes on all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee thought he was close to God because Pharisees are, well, good people. Pharisees in Paul's day uh, knew the law of God, but they also created all kinds of other laws outside of God's laws that by following all these little bitty details, they knew they were good. Paul would have known this, because why? Well, he was a Pharisee himself before coming to faith in Christ. But the Pharisees proved Paul's point here. That if you think you are good because of the things you do, then what will happen is you will boast of your goodness in God's presence and you will look down on others. Paul says that when you pass judgment on others, you're actually doing what? You're, you're condemning yourself. Ouch. Ouch every time you mock a classmate for her hairstyle or the clothes she wears, every time you vilify those people from that other political party, every time you shout, idiot, at the intersection, every time we do these things, we are not proving ourselves right, but rather we are condemning ourselves in God's presence. See, many Jews in Paul's day thought that their good behavior earned them the right to judge others. They thought that by judging others, God would applaud them for their indignation. How wrong you are, says Paul. If you condemn others, you are actually only condemning yourself. What's he getting at? When Paul says that the moralists practice the very same thing as the irreligious, I mean, what is he getting at? I mean, a Jew in Paul's day would say, I don't practice those same things that you listed last week. I don't do that. So how can Paul say they're doing the very same things? He's not just talking about like hypocrisy here. We need to go back to chapter 1. Remember verses 18 through 20 where Paul said that the wrath of, wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth about God. He went on to, to, to say how those... Irreligious uh, pagans who suppress the truth about God end up actually worshiping things in the creation rather than the the creator. They took God off the pedestal and placed themselves there. Now in chapter 2, Paul turns his attention to the religious moralist. He says that they suppress the truth too, but in a slightly different way. See, the truth about God that, that Paul's Jewish listeners would have suppressed is that, is that the truth that a relationship with God is not by works, it's by, by faith. By, it's always been that way, all the way back in Abraham's day. The, the big truth about God that they would suppress is that only God has the right to judge humanity. And so to take the role of judge means is that you've taken God off of his throne and placed yourself on it. Do you see, do you see why this is so offensive? It's not just some small sin that God will just turn a blind eye towards. He cannot take out off his throne. He has every right to be angry and upset with you. Paul rightly says, you have no excuse, oh man. The second bad news for moralists is they take God's grace for granted. You know, most decent, hardworking people in America would take offense with you if you say that God will judge them, Right? The most common perspective that people have is that God is not, doesn't want perfection, just sincerity. So if you mean to be a good person, then mess up every now and then. Well, it's God's duty to let it slide. He is, after all, God, and he's merciful. He has to do that, right? Have you ever felt that way? you ever thought that way? Why is this wrong? Well, when we think this way, we are presuming Upon God's grace. And many Jews in Paul's days did this. Look at verse 3 and 4. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape God's judgment? And Check this out. Verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God is rich in kindness, kindness and in, intolerance. In That's what forbearance means. God is rich in kindness in tolerance and patience. You know, when I think of the word rich, I don't think of money. I think of chocolate cake. <laughs> You've probably done this, right? There's a whole cake there and you get to cut your own slice. It's chocolate. you love it. And you like cut that really big piece thinking you're going to eat it all. And then you dig in and it is so rich that after two bites, maybe five, after five bites, you have to put your fork down and hold your tummy and go, mmm, rich. That's how it is with the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience we human beings foolishly think that we fully comprehend the grace of God how loving and kind God is but if we were really to feed upon his kindness and his tolerance and his patience we would just get a few bites of it and we would put our forks down and we would lift our hands and we would rejoice and worship him for his kindness and tolerance, and patience. We would no longer take his kindness for granted. We, we would repent of ever thinking that God had to forgive us. That's just what he does. We would repent of every self-righteous thought we ever had. And we have delight in the righteousness that we now have through faith in Jesus Christ. So first the bad news for moralists is that they too are under God's judgment. Second, that they take God's grace for granted, and lastly they are storing up wrath. I'm telling you verse five brings a stark reality home to roost. What is it that most self-righteous people think they are storing up? Good deeds, a record of great accomplishment, all these things that they have done. And if if there is a God, uh, well, then surely someday I'm going to take him into his presence. And he's just going to pat me on the back. That's not what Paul says here. He says actually just the opposite. Let's read verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Did you notice that Paul didn't write, because of your hard and impenitent heart, God is storing up wrath for you, as if God is, has a place up there where he's storing it. No, he says, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Try to wrap your head around that. That's pretty challenging. God is not like this safe, timid, meek, you know, great uncle in the sky. He's glorious and good and powerful. He's confounding. He says, Paul says, you are storing up wrath for yourself. You remember the, the parable of Jesus earlier, the Pharisee was praying in the temple as if he was sure that God was on his side. No doubt he thought that just by going up into the temple and praying there, uh, God would have just like given him brownie points, right? No doubt he thought that he was earning uh, favor with God, but he wasn't earning any points. He was storing up wrath. He was presuming upon God's kindness. Paul writes that all who live with Uh, the belief that they are saving themselves by living so-called good lives are actually storing up wrath. And Paul says that there's a day coming when God's righteous good judgment will come upon people and be revealed. So Paul is telling us a few things. One, he's telling us God has every right to judge. Two, he's telling us we have no right to judge. Paul's whole, whole point is that this finger-pointing impulse in our hearts is part of the problem that we need to be saved from. Paul also tells us that if you think you're too good to need Jesus, then your hell begins in this life. In your dark, impenitent heart, the beginning of judgment is your own grumbling and and, fault-finding, that touchy, self righteous. Heart that just can 't stop blaming others, <laughs> your hell begins on earth, wrapped up in your pious looking down on others, and always being angry and bitter that 's the bad news for more or less now the criterion by which God judges all we see this in verses six through eleven. This section can be kind of hard to figure out why well. Because at first reading, it seems as if Paul is contradicting what he's been saying in the book of Romans, that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone, that that you cannot work your way to heaven. Uh, It's by faith in Christ, not by moral effort. Then we read in verse 6, he will render to each according to his works. And then in verse 7, we read that those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will be wrath and fury there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first and also the Greek for God shows no partiality is is Paul undoing doing the gospel he seems to be saying if you do these work things then you will earn eternal life is he changing the gospel no he's not Romans Romans is about the new life that God gives people in Jesus Christ, that old, dark heart that beats for self is taken out and replaced by a new heart, a heart that is alive to the grace of God, that beats for God in his glory, one that loves God and loves neighbor. This is uh, the new life in Christ that causes us to long for that day of the resurrection, resurrection. Christians don't do good works to earn heaven, but rather heaven has already been given to Christians. And so our good works are a response to that grace that God has given us. Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. The fruit of our faith is good works. Now, all that being said, let's narrow down what Paul is really saying in verses 6 through 11. We need to understand what Paul is doing in chapter 2. Paul is using a rhetorical style called diatribe. He's arguing against an imaginary person, right? Oh, man. <laughs> and we'll find out next week that this was uh, Jewish moralists that were present all around and, uh, in, and perhaps even in the church. He's arguing against an uh, imaginary moral upright Jew. And as he argues with him, we're supposed to draw the proper conclusions to apply to our own lives. And what we're supposed to see here is there's a criterion for eternal life uh, that is um, what Paul is showing us. It's not new criterion. It goes all the way back to the garden. God gave Adam uh, the same criterion. Adam, if you would but just bear my image here on earth, that you would reflect my glory into creation and be fruitful and multiply... I will give you eternal life. But if you disobey, if you take me off my throne and you live for your own glory, if you eat of this fruit that was the temptation was for, then you will experience eternal death. Theologians speculate that this was just a temporal test. I don't know, uh, two months, ten years, thousand years. Eventually, God would say to Adam, Adam, awesome, good job, faithful servant. You did it. You withstood the temptations of this world. I'm now creating a world now in which the fullness of the kingdom is here, no longer any more temptation. I've banished Satan forever. That's what the thought was, that, 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 that Adam was offered this. But we know what happened. Adam took the bait. He fell. We don't even know, therefore, how it all would have worked out. What we see here is we all experience this broken humanity now, and so to understand what Paul is doing, we need to see that he's showing the readers not uh, the readers' criterion for salvation. That he's saying to them that the that the playing field is level for God. Uh, there is no Jew or Greek, uh, rich or poor, slave or free, wise or foolish. God shows no partiality. That's the main point. Paul wants to make sure Mr. Moral High Ground knows that his Jewishness has no advantage for him. The criterion is impartial. Live a good, honoring, uh, God-honoring life, whether you be Jew or Greek, and you will get eternal life. The problem is, this is a hypothetical. <laughs> Why? Because none of us can do that. None of us can say we've lived the good, God-honoring life that we should have lived. As Paul will say in a few weeks, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the criteria, not for the standard by which God judges all. This remaining section is also challenging. It takes a little explanation. Um, if you put your head inside the moralistic Jew that Paul is arguing with, it'll help you make a little more sense of verses 12 through 16. The moralistic Jew thinks, as Mr. uh, Self-Righteous, that he has has an advantage over Mr. Self-Indulgence. And in in a sense, he does. Next week, we're going to see that the Jews really had an advantage. That's why Paul says, first to the Jew, then the Greek. See, they were the chosen people of God. They were given the sign of circumcision, which marks them off as God's people. They were given the law so that they would know how to properly relate to God and to each other. So the imaginary moralistic Jew would think that, that having the law gave him an advantage over, over the Gentiles. You see, th- he would be thinking, I know what to do because God has shown me and I'm doing it. Paul needs to set him straight. Paul demonstrates that God judges fairly. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. The law here's the 10 commandments. Those who sin without having the law will be fairly judged as those who just didn't have the law. That's that sounds fair to me, right? You don't have the law. All right, I'm not going to judge you by the law. Okay. Those who do have the law, the Jews, well you're going to be you're going to be judged by the law. You've got it. So what does the law say? Sounds fair, right? Verse 13 he adds, for it's not just the hearers of the law who are, justi- are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Paul says that those who do the law will be justified. It's not enough to know the law. One must respond in perfect obedience. Now, is Paul once again saying that we have to earn our salvation? It sounds like we justify ourselves by doing the right things. Not so fast. Remember, Paul is framing a rhetorical argument. It's Verses 12 through 13, it's a hypothetical situation. Paul is saying whether people have the written law or not, people are saved according to doing what is right. The problem is no one could ever do what is right, whether you have the law or you don't have the law. No one lives up to that standard. All have fallen short. Neither the Jew who has the law nor the Gentile who has not the law can stand in God's presence. That's Paul's point. And so these last few verses, it isn't, he, he, isn't how, he isn't showing us how someone can save themselves, but rather that God is fair in judging all. That's his point, right? He's, he's, that's the point he's making. All right, let's look at verse 14 and 16. Amazing verses. They help us with uh, some important truths uh, that we need to see in Scripture. And in fact, um, these verses address the 2,000-year-old dilemma. Have you ever asked yourself... What about the innocent tribesmen who's living far away in uh, the jungles of the, of the Amazon? Are you saying that God will judge them because they, they haven't even heard of Jesus Christ? Paul addresses that here. Have you, ever, have you ever wrestled with that question? I wrestled with that question before coming to faith in Christ. It was one of those things that, that if I cannot resolve this, I don't think I could, could be a Christian. Paul deals with this in verses 14 through 16. See if you can follow what Paul is doing here. In verses 14 through 16, Paul is saying, he says, Though the Gentiles do not have the law of God, it's not as if they, that's not what's in the text, I'm paraphrasing. (laughs) You guys are looking at it like, all right, what is it? Okay, all right. (laughs) Paul says, Though the Gentiles don't have the written law of God, it's not as if they don't know right and wrong. God has written right and wrong on the human heart. It's, it's how God made man in the garden originally with the law written on our hearts, knowing what is right and wrong. So when the Gentiles, even though they have experienced the fall and don't totally... Our brains don't function totally right. Our hearts are somewhat dark. Even even though those realities exist, don't be surprised when a Gentile who's never heard the law fulfills it. See, Paul is speaking about the truth that right and wrong is truly ingrained into humanity. Go around any culture in the world, even to the deepest, darkest recesses of the jungles of the Amazon, and you will find people who what? Know that murder is wrong, that stealing is bad, that adultery is forbidden. Now, because of the fall, human consciences are are a little faulty. There will not be universal acceptance. There will always be outliers, psychopaths, and mentally deranged, right? But by and large, we do not need the Ten Commandments to know at a basic level what right and wrong is. Take a candy bar from a toddler and... he'll know that that was wrong, right? At least in my household. No more toddlers, though. You take their iPhone, and they'll know that that was wrong. (laughs) All right. Um, In verse 15, Paul describes what goes on in the conscience of someone who does not have the Jewish privilege of the law. He says that Gentiles do not need scripture to sense guilt before God. Their own consciences bear witness to how they've lived. That's Paul's point. Everyone is guilty in God's sight. Those who have the written law are guilty. Why? Because they cannot do it. And those who do not have the written law are guilty too. Why? For no one can live up to their own standards of right and wrong, let alone God's. Isn't it true? If you're here this morning and and you're not a follower of Christ, is it not at least true that you have some set of rules that you believe others should live by? A certain degree of generosity that you expect in society. A certain um, level of reciprocity. If I do this, someone should rightly do this in response. And, and do you not believe that others should, well, quickly, like, forgive you when you make a mistake, right? Of course you do. That's Paul's point. All human beings have a standard of right and wrong. Problem is, we don't even live up to our own standards. Here's what Paul's getting at. God will... Judge you according to the standard you affirm. The Jew will point to the Torah as his or her standard. God will judge them according to the standard they have accepted. Gentiles, pagans, atheists, Buddhists, bohemians. Everyone else will be judged by the standard that that individual affirms for themselves. Problem is, no one is able to live up to their own standard, let alone God's. See, you might be able to hide your failings from other people, put up a good front, but you cannot hide from God. Paul writes in verse 16 that there's a day coming when according to his gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ. Everyone has secrets. Things you've done or haven't done or wished you've done that no one knows about. You've probably got a few things that came up this past week, right? Glad no one knows that. Our dark secrets demonstrate that we don't even live up to our own standards. The seminary I graduated from, Covenant Theological Seminary, uh, is home of the Francis Schaeffer Institute. You may know who Francis Schaeffer is. Maybe you don't, but he's one of the greatest intellectual minds of the 20th century. And he described what Paul is doing here this way. He said, each person goes through life with an individual tape recorder hanging around his or her neck. Okay, MP3 player. All right, let's upgrade it. It records everything we say about others, who they should be, what they should do, what we expect out of them. And then on the last day, God the judge will take the tape recorder off your neck and say, remember, I'm completely fair let's just hit play and I will just judge you according to the standard that you have judged others. Do you see why Paul in our passage says, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? No one in history can realistically answer, yes, I think I will. Have you said no to the gospel because you think that God unfairly judges all those innocent tribesmen in the middle of the Amazon? Well, there is no such thing as an innocent tribesman. (laughs) He's guilty according to his own standard. It's not about whether you heard about Jesus. It's about how how have you lived your life? What standard? How have you lived up to your own standard? That's how God judges. God will judge the secrets in his own heart. I don't even know what they are. I don't even know what Amazonian tribesmen think about, right? But God does. No one has ever lived without secrets to hide. We're all hypocrites of our own standards. Therefore, we'll be found guilty in God's sight of our own, falling short of our own standard. So what is Paul trying to do here? He desires to help us, all right? Uh, and in doing so, he wants us to see that Mr. Moral Highground's record is really deficient. He can't even live up to his own standard, let alone God's and that he too will have no excuse before God. Paul is preparing us for the good news in, in chapter three. See, it, we need to see how bad things are before we'll, we'll really receive uh, God's grace and mercy. If you think that you can just collect this good record and, you know, compare to most people, you're pretty good, uh, and then, you're, you know, you're just going to, uh, God will just like grant you uh, access, just pat you on the back. Paul is showing us something quite different here. we If that's the way we live, we are what? Presuming upon God's grace. God's grace is meant to lead not to licentiousness and partying. It's meant to lead to repentance. And what will God do in response to our repentance? Check this out. God will give us the record we need. He will exchange for our record of immorality or morality, whichever we want to hold before him, he'll exchange it for the perfect record of his son who lived the life we should have lived, died the life, death we should have died, and he will give us that record, perfect record of righteousness. Where does this leave us this morning? I, I guess it depends on who you were when you came in. You, you may consider yourself a pretty decent good person. Maybe you consider yourself a Christian because you do the right things. You come, you know, four out of five Sundays and and you throw a few bills in in the basket. You try to live a decent life and therefore you believe that God is surely pleased with you. I hope we see this morning that in doing that we're presuming upon his grace and in the end you'll miss out on his grace. In the sense you're saying, I don't have need of God's grace. These other people do. Yeah, look at them, but I don't need it. God is patient with you. He's patient so that you can repent. Your judge wants to be your defender. Will you let him do that? Most of us here have come with the realization that forever ever to stand in God's presence with a clear conscience, we've got to drop our own record and uh, hold on to the record of Christ and what he's done for us. Paul's words help us too. They remind us of the grace that we received. They remind us that our judge has now become our greatest defender. That we now, by God's grace, have clear consciences before God. Those secrets have been taken and nailed upon the cross. It also reminds us of what we should be as a church. You know, unfortunately, churches like people can lose sight of the cross. We can be a place where people come to focus on the externals. Good Christians, well, those are people who read their Bibles, so read your Bibles. Good Christians are those who always smile on Sundays, so put your arguments, leave them in the car, and and always smile on Sundays. Good Christians are those who do this and do that, so do this and, and do that, and the church begins to focus on the externals. No, my friends. Good Christians are those who daily rely upon the perfect record of Jesus Christ. Good Christians know that they still are not good. The cross allows us to daily, as individuals and as a church, stop all the secret keeping. The cross allows you and me to walk through these doors without putting on a show. the cross of Christ calls us to look upon people with the same eyes that Jesus looks upon us with love and with tender mercy grace church this is this is who god is calling us to be a people who are so loved and so forgiven that we are so loving and so forgiving a place where Honest brokenness triumphs over fake righteousness. A place where, because we have feasted on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, we become a place where others feast as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we sit here and ponder your greatness we are reminded that you are rich in grace and that we remain needy children continually dependent upon christ's record we're thankful god that you are now no longer our judge but our greatest defender may we live as your people in our community and in this church as those who know your grace and live by grace we pray amen